with me now to the word of God in Exodus 17. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us? or not. And what follows is this morning's sermon text. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God, in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Last Lord's Day morning, we focused on the name Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah our healer. This morning, we're going to look at another one of his names, J 
Jehovah Nessi or Jehovah our banner. Israel had come to a place called Rephidim. It was in the shadow of Mount Sinai. And this was their fourth camp after Mara. And it was there that, once again, they complained for lack of water. And there, too, that God gave them water out of the rock by a wonderful miracle. But it was also there at Rephidim that Amalek attacked Israel. And Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, had to fight its first battle as a nation, now delivered from Egypt against this powerful enemy, Amalek. And it was in commemoration of Israel's victory over Amalek that Moses built an altar and called it Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah our banner. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, but not just at the history of what happened thousands of years ago to Israel, but we want to see once again that what happened at Rephidim when Israel defeated Amalek is all about us and has something to say to us, especially that name, Jehovah Nissi. Not only the children of Israel, but we with them can call the God of our salvation by that name. He is our banner as well as theirs. So we're going to look at Israel's enemy this morning, Amalek. We're going to look at the battle. I don't think any other battle in the history of the world was ever fought like this one. And we're going to look at the victory that Israel had over Amalek and that we have over our enemies. Before The enemy first then, but before we talk about Amalek, I want you to think about one of the Psalter numbers we sang. Psalter number five. That Psalter number begins... You sang that, and I did together. Psalter number begins, O Lord, how are my foes increased? Against me many rise. And I wonder if you even thought about the fact that singing those words, you were singing about your enemies. Wonder too if when you sing other psalms that are similar to that, you even put yourself into those psalms. We live, of course, in a world that's at least outwardly at peace with us. We don't suffer the kind of persecution that believers in North Korea, in Indonesia, 
and Muslim countries often suffer, able to go about our business, raising our families, doing our work, and able to do that without any open enmity showed against us by others who don't believe. And the result of that is, I think, that when we sing something like Psalter number 5, we don't even put ourselves into that psalm, even though it speaks of my foes and of many rising against me. And I want to remind you that though the nation of Amalek has long vanished from history, that you and I have real enemies, spiritual enemies especially, and that Thinking of those enemies, we should sing a Psalter number like Psalter number five and put ourselves into the words that we sing. When I say that, you probably say to yourself, oh yes, oh yes, we have those three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the fact remains, I'm convinced of that, that we really do not see them as enemies the way we should. The devil's presence, because he's invisible, The devil's presence seems rather unreal to us. We become complacent and self-satisfied and forget what an enemy our own flesh, what a real enemy our own flesh is. And the world, too, because we are able to live relatively peacefully in this society. The world doesn't seem like that great of an enemy, if it seems an enemy at all. But we have to think of those things, have to think of those enemies as real enemies, as powerful enemies, if we're to learn anything from the Word of God in this passage, they are as real as Amalek was, as dangerous, perhaps even more dangerous, than Amalek was to Israel. And thinking of Amalek in terms the world, the flesh, the devil, we can put ourselves into this passage and see our need for that name, Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah our banner. Actually, it's more personal than that. It's literally Jehovah my banner. But because we say that together, each of us in faith, it's not wrong to interpret that name as Jehovah, our banner. Amalek, the nation that attacked Israel, was descended from Esau, Jacob's brother, so they were distantly related 
to the Israelites, but from Esau and the Canaanites, the nations who lived in the land of Canaan when Israel first came there and who were noted for their gross idolatry and especially for the wicked practice of sacrificing their own children to their idols. Amalek was descended from Esau and the Canaanites and were, when they attacked Israel, far from their homeland. The Amalekites lived in the deserts east of the land of Canaan. You may have to look all that up on a map. But Israel was way south of the land of Canaan, down at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. So Amalek had to come all the way across the deserts, the Sinai deserts to attack Israel. And there can be no doubt then that this battle between Israel and the Amalekites was not just a random encounter, but that Amalek had come deliberately to make war on Israel. And that shouldn't surprise us either because even when the Israelites came to the land of Canaan, everybody had heard about what God did for them when he brought them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. And the Amalekites then must have attacked Israel out of hatred, not just for the Israelites, but out of hatred for Jehovah, who delivered them, led them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, and led them through the deserts to Mount Sinai. And that helps explain, too, what God says about Amalek, his anger against Amalek. When the battle was over, he said to Moses, write this and tell it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And then again in verse 16, the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. But you have to understand, and that's where this begins to touch on our lives and our enemies, you have to understand that in the Old Testament, when nations like Amalek attacked Israel, they didn't just do that out of hatred, for God and for God's people, but they did that too, moved by the devil, and did it then to destroy the hope of Christ's coming and of the fulfillment of the promises in Christ. That's always Satan's purpose. And in the Old Testament, he used the nation's enemies to try to accomplish that, whether they were aware of it or not. We don't know of the fact that Satan was using them But he was always there, and that was always his purpose. Later on, in fact, he would use another Amalekite named Haman 
to try and wipe out for no good reason, to wipe out the nation of Israel entirely by what would today be called genocide, to destroy them as a nation forever. And then two, Haman's purpose, motivated by Satan, was to destroy Israel who carried that promise of the coming of Christ and out of whom God had said Christ would come. So in that way already, Israel's enemy was our enemy too. Think of what would have happened that wasn't possible, of course, as we'll see in that name Jehovah Nissi. But think of what would have happened if Amalek had destroyed Israel there in the wilderness, or if Haman, an Amalekite, had destroyed the nation. From a human point of view, it would have been impossible for Christ to come as the Savior of his people. So Israel's enemy already in that respect is ours. But we have to think of Amalek, too, in terms of the unbelieving world we live in. In spite of the fact that that world seems to be more or less at peace with God's people. You see the kind of enmity that Amalek displayed only in things like the homosexual movement, which hates Christianity with a passion. And the word of God and everything that the word of God says in condemnation of their lifestyles and would, if that was possible, destroy the Christian church. And God's people, the only thing that restrains them and doesn't restrain them even entirely are still the laws of the land. But it's not just movements of that sort. The world, the unbelieving world, and we may not forget that, is the enemy of the church and is used by Satan against the church. Perhaps in spite of the peace, the outward peace we enjoy, perhaps never so much as today. It's by putting on a friendly face, by pretending to be neighborly. And often in their deeds, they are neighborly that we fall into complacency, become less than watchful, are easily, very, very easily influenced by the way that they think, the way that they live, by the fact that they seem to have everything they want handed to them on a platter, while oftentimes we lack, have to make sacrifices, suffer for Christ's sake. And the result of that is that 
we become spiritually dull. And I have to realize that that's one of the ways in which Satan, using them, perhaps in spite of their own knowledge, uses them to make war on the church. And, of course, that means to them that we have a battle to fight, a spiritual battle. We don't fight with swords and spears. The weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are not carnal but spiritual. But Amalek represents that world, unbelieving world, which is entirely under the dominion of Satan and which he uses to make war on God's people and on the church. Friendship with the world. Do you remember that John says that in his first epistle? The friendship of the world is enmity with God. But that's what Satan is accomplishing. Today, in his war against the church of Christ, we're at ease, complacent, unworried, not willing to stand up and fight, not even for something as clearly taught as the word of God in Romans 1, which speaks so powerfully against the sin of homosexuality. We want it easy. Then Amalek is still around. As the passage indicates, God says in that last verse, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amalek, though it doesn't exist as a nation anymore, is still around from a spiritual point of view and represented by the unbelieving world in which we live, which in different ways makes war on the church of Christ, sometimes by persecution, but perhaps more deceitfully, and effectively by the kind of spiritual warfare that's being waged today. When they convince us that they're friends and not enemies. You see? And Here at Rephidim, you see, too, that that unbelieving world and the devil have an ally in our own flesh, our own sinfulness. And in that way, too, Amalek is around from generation to generation. I am, if I may put it that way, I am by nature an Amalekite and not an Israelite. I am, or I do, every time I sin, show that at least apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, I'm on the wrong side in this battle. And often see in my own behavior that I'm not helping 
the cause of God's people, but hindering it and helping the world by my behavior. And so I trust you see that what's written here in the Word of God has a real application to us. That Amalek is a kind of picture of our enemies, our bitter, sworn enemies, and that we too then have a battle to fight. Always, always, everywhere, the battle against evil. I fight that battle when I find my own Amalekite nature making war on me, rising up against me is the phrase the Bible uses in the Psalms. Then I fight that battle by getting down on my knees and repenting of my sin. Fight that battle by praying for grace to see my sinfulness and to do what's right. Fight that battle when I do what James talks about. I resist the devil, which is really the same thing as resisting temptation, not giving in to it but resisting it. Fight that battle when I do what the Word of God says in 2 Corinthians 6. Live a life that's different and separate from the life that the unbelieving world lives. Come ye out from among them and be ye separate. God says, what fellowship hath light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial? Another name for Satan. What does the temple of God have to do with idols? Come ye out from among them, and I will be a God of you, God says. And so we fight the same battle, really, that Israel fought, only we fight it not on an earthly level, but on a higher spiritual level, where our enemies are ever so much more dangerous than Amalek was. And where the battle is not for our physical lives, but for our souls. Amalek is still around. We still have this battle to fight. We fight it in our homes. When we discipline our children, when we teach them the fear of the Lord, we fight that in our homes when we, instead of giving up on marriage, we work, battle, to make our marriages what the Word of God says they ought to be. We fight that battle in our homes when we have the Word of God, which, by the way, is the sword of the Spirit. When we have the Word of God open in our homes, fight that battle with prayer. It's prayer perhaps more than anything else that puts the devil to flight. 
fight that battle when we do everything we can to build our homes on the foundation of the Word of God, then we're really fighting Israel's battle against Amalek. Now, there are several things notable about that battle. There's, first of all, the fact that Moses appointed Joshua to lead Israel against the Amalekites. But then there's that whole story of what happened in the course of the battle. How Moses went to the top of a nearby hill, Aaron and her with him, and held up his hands toward heaven. And there's no doubt that that means that he didn't hold them up empty, but he held them up with that rod of God in his hands. And the Bible tells us that as long as he kept his hands up, Israel prevailed in the battle. But when his arms grew tired and began to sag, then Amalek won or prevailed. And so Aaron and Hur, one on each side of Moses, held up his arms until the battle was over and Israel had won. I remember thinking as a child that that was a little bit unfair, that if Moses couldn't hold up his hands by himself, he shouldn't have had any help with that. But that's wrong. The fact that Aaron and her were there to hold up his hands is just another way of getting across the main message of that part of the passage. And the main message has to do with that name Jehovah Nissi. Jehovah our banner. The reference is to Moses holding up his hands with the rod of God. That was Israel's banner. And the banner to which that name refers when Israel fought against Amalek. But I think you know what a banner is. It's something like our country's flag. It represents everything that we have as a nation. And when that banner or flag is carried into battle, it represents what we're fighting for, represents the power of the nation for which we fight. And that's what this banner represents, too. Only, of course, it's a banner that represents not any earthly power or might, but the fact that God is the God of his people, and he always fights for them. Jehovah, our banner, means, as the Bible says in another place, that the battle our battle, Israel's battles, are the Lord's. And in this case, of course, that comes out remarkably. It was only when that banner was held up that Israel prevailed. And of course, in some cases in Israel's history, they didn't even have to fight because God was fighting for them. Ordinarily, we do. Have to battle courageously, battle valiantly. But in some cases, they didn't even have to fight. Joshua and his 300 just stood on the hillside shouting and waving torches. 
And the Lord fought for his people at that time. And so it was often in the Old Testament, but always, always, the battle is the Lord's. And that's what that name reflects. Our battle is the Lord's. You understand that? If you don't take anything else home from this morning's sermon, I hope you take that home. That name, Jehovah Nissi, which, by the way, is really a name for Christ. It's in Christ, in the work of Christ, in the person of Christ, that God shows himself to be Jehovah, our banner. In fact, there's a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 11, where Christ is actually called our banner. But it's for that reason, too, that Joshua had to lead Israel into battle. He is the Jesus of the Old Testament and the one who won the victory for Israel as a picture of Jesus. But in Isaiah 11, Christ himself is called our banner. Verses 10, verse 10, and then again verse 12. In that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, that's Christ, which shall stand for an ensign, a banner of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And then again, verse 12, he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall establish, assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. God is our banner in Christ. He fights the battle against our enemies in Christ. Fought it, of course, first of all at the cross where all our spiritual enemies as they're pictured here by Amalek were defeated forever. But the battle is his too as we fight it from day to day. And that's what I want you to remember. Luther put it well in that Reformation hymn. And that applies to family, to the church, to me personally. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. Jehovah Nissi in Christ. We're not the right man on our side. You see? That's the lesson of this passage and a lesson that we need to learn because when it's so easy to start thinking that in the battle I'm the one who matters that things depend on me and when I start thinking that way then I start making wrong decisions and going astray from the word of God. There's trouble in the church, for example. And it goes on and on and on, and things get worse and worse, and there doesn't seem to be any solution. And whether I'm an elder or a member, I do what I can, and it goes nowhere. But because I've begun to think 
that that battle depends on me when things go nowhere that I make wrong decisions about my church membership. Give up. Perhaps give up entirely on the church and go my own way. I forget that the battle is the Lord's, that he's the one who has to bring reformation in the church, who has to change people's hearts and minds, and that though I'm called to fight for the truth, for what's right, whatever it may be, nothing, nothing depends on me. And when I've done whatever I can, then it's my calling, if you will, to go up to the top of the hill and put my hands up to him. When I look back, by the way, parents do the same thing in their own homes. When parental discipline and parental discipline are not, uh, and teaching are not what they should be, it's often because, without even realizing it, parents have begun to think that the spiritual well-being of their children depends on them. That leads to over-discipline, to dis the kind of discipline that Hebrews 12 talks about. When parents discipline children for their own pleasure and not for righteousness' sake, Those are the things that happen. And when I look back on our own family life, then I see those things. See over-discipline. And I am convinced that it's because I forgot in disciplining my children that the battle is the Lord. Discipline that sometimes goes over even into abuse. The same thing happens in the church when we forget that the battle is the Lord. On the part, I mean, of the minister and the elders. Instead of just simply bringing the word of God to those who are out of the way, they argue with them. And that's usually a sign that I've forgotten to whom the battle belongs. I have to bring the word of God, but argument, fighting even, with those who are out of the way goes nowhere. It's God who must change them, change their hearts, lead them out of sin, evil, into the right way. And again, to use an example from my own ministry, looking back, it seemed to me that when I was a new minister, I thought that every little problem in the church had to be jumped on with both feet and had to be corrected immediately or we couldn't go on as a congregation. But where does that leave room for the Spirit of God to do what only he can do in that great battle against evil and wrong? There must be patience. There must be waiting upon God and upon his Spirit. There must be trust in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in that battle. Otherwise, we've forgotten Jehovah Nissi. I think you get the point, and I have to finish. 
But not only is the battle the Lord's, but the victory his too. You may not forget that the battle is his, but you may not forget either. In your struggle with family problems, when difficulties come in the church of Jesus Christ, you may not forget that for us as New Testament believers, the battle is won. It is over. The battle against evil. Oh, I know we have to fight on. But that's what in ordinary warfare they just, they call mopping up operations. The battle's won. And it was won by Joshua. The Joshua of the New Testament. At the cross, the battle you fight for your children, the battle we fight in the church, the battle I fight every day against my own nature was won at the cross. Don't forget that. Jehovah Nissi, the battle is the Lord said, because it's his, it's over. We are, Paul says in Romans 8, more than conquerors through him that loved us. And for that reason, too, do what Moses did in this battle. Take the rod of God in your hands and go up the hill and lift up your hands toward heaven. Towards him to whom the victory as well as the battle belongs. And then fight on until Christ comes again. God grant it. Father, we thank thee for what we have heard this morning and ask that we may take it and apply it to ourselves, fighting the great battle of fight in our own lives, in our homes, and in the church, but always in the confidence that thou art our strength and our salvation. Forgive the sins we've committed in speaking of these things, Give all our sins for Jesus' sake. Bless us as we go our separate ways for a few hours. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.